0: Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Peter Rose, and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or $50 for Print Plus Online. G'day listeners. Recently I was in Sydney for a few days, a good opportunity to reconnect with ABR writers and to meet some newcomers. I happened to be there on July 13th, the day of Frank Morehouse's memorial service at the State Library of New South Wales, and what a splendid occasion this was, with ten unusually good talks and eulogies, both witty and poignant. Speakers included Tom Keneally and Don Anderson. Catherine Lumby writes about Frank Morehouse for our August issue. Catherine has just finished her biography of Morehouse. While in Sydney, I heard a wonderful concert by the Australian Youth Orchestra under Mark Elder. But I was principally there for the opening night of Opera Australia's new production of Il Trovatore. And what a disappointment this proved to be, both vocally and dramatically. Few critics derive enjoyment from writing one star reviews, but in an age of hyperbole and a certain critical accommodation, something clearly had to be said. Here's my review for ABR Arts Whenever you hear a good performance of any one of at least half a dozen operas by Giuseppe Verdi, it's tempting to think. This surely he can never have surpassed. Il Trovatore, from his fecund middle phase, is one such opera. But then one recalls La Traviata and Don Carlo and Otello. on the list goes, and simply marvels at the variety and richness of his oeuvre. Trovatore followed Rigoletto, which was given its premiere in Venice in March 1851. Verdi had returned to Busseto to face various personal problems arising from his notorious relationship with Giuseppina Straponi, whom he would not marry until 1859. Agnostic and stubborn by nature, Verdi quarrelled with his parents, eventually relocating them to a house outside Busseto. His mother died in June 1851. Domestic burdens apart, Verdi was rarely idle for long, certainly not in those years. Often drawn to Spanish subjects, he was attracted to El Trovador, a play by Antonio García Gutiérrez, first performed in Madrid in 1836. Gutiérrez, like Verdi, was a devotee of Victor Hugo. The play is a romantic melodrama Set against the backdrop of a 15th century Spanish civil war. Salvatore Camarano, most acclaimed for his libretto for Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor in 1835, was the chosen librettist. He and Verdi had already collaborated on three operas El Zira, La Battaglia di Legnano, and Luisa Miller, all from the second half of the 1840s. As with other librettists before him, there were tensions between Camerano and Verdi. The composer was unhappy with his treatment of Azucena, the gypsy woman who must endlessly relive her mother's tragedy. Verdi saw Azucena as the major character in the opera. In a letter to Camerano, he described her as, quote, strange and new. He even thought of naming the opera after her. Verdi, in a letter, implored Camerano to humanize Azucena right to the end. Quote Don't make Azucena go mad. Exhausted with fatigue, suffering, terror, and sleeplessness, she speaks confusedly. Her faculties are weakened, but she is not mad. This woman's two great passions, her love for Enrico and her wild desire to avenge her mother must be sustained to the end. When Manrico is dead, her feeling of revenge overwhelms her, and in the utmost agitation she cries, quote, yes, he was your brother, fool, mother, you are avenged, end of quote. When Camerano died in July 1852, he was replaced by a young Neapolitan poet, Leone Emanuele Badare, who would also collaborate with Verdi on an adaptation of Rigoletto in Naples in 1857. Trovatore is customarily divided into four acts. Camerano named each of these acts, The Jewel, The Gypsy, The Gypsy Son, and The Punishment. The plot of the opera is famously complex. Gustave Kobe described it as the Acme of Absurdity though he went on to note, Il Trovatore is the Verdi of 50 working at White Heat. Verdi is said to have composed the score in one month, November 1852. By the time he was producing the premiere in Rome, which took place on the 19th of January 1853, he was already composing La Traviata. We know that Trovatore is Verdi's darkest and most death-haunted opera. The libretto abounds with references to fire, flames, burning. In a letter to Clara Maffei, Verdi acknowledged the criticism of his opera as overly gloomy. But after all, in life isn't everything death? What else exists? Trovatore is an interestingly retrospective, even deterministic opera. Virtually everything has happened before the curtain rises. In the first scene, Ferrando, Captain of the Guard, relates the story of how long ago a gypsy woman bewitched one of the sons of the old Count de Luna. The opera teems with melodies, some of them quite brief. Herbert von Karajan, who conducted it often, including a famous EMI studio recording with Maria Callas, said, quote, My conception of Il Trovatore is that here are what Carl Jung calls archetypes fear, hate, love. And you know, there is not one dull moment in the entire opera. Bernard Shaw, though considering it absolutely devoid of intellectual interest, was another admirer of the opera. Done well, despite its inherent preposterousness, Travatore should breeze by passionate, vigorous, unstoppable. Charles Osborne, in his essential book The Complete Operas of Erdi, describes the opera as, quote, the veritable apotheosis of the Belcanto opera, with its demands for vocal beauty, agility, and range, unquote. The role of Leonora, Lady-in-waiting to the Queen, Demands the resources of a true Belcantist, especially in her Act IV aria, D'Amour Sul Ali Rose, whose long lines are so reminiscent of Bellini's Casta Diva. Maria Callas, who sang the part from 1950 to 1956, restored its Belcanto credentials. On YouTube, there is a stupendous D'Amour from Callas, sung at La Scala in 1953. All the above counts for little in Davide Livermore's new production for Opera Australia, which must be one of the sillier and more irritating offerings from the national company in decades. Livermore's work is by now very familiar in this country. This is his fifth production for the company, and doubtless there will be more. With Gio Forma, his longtime designer, Livermore, relies on what's described as cutting edge LED technology, seven meter high digital panels that are moved about on a busy automation system or bustled into place by busy choristers. All three Livermore productions that I've seen, I missed Tatilla, have had their quirks, those ubiquitous beetles in Annabellena come to mind. But the new production is utterly nonsensical. There's an endless sequence of bright and rarely integrated images. Any design student could come up with this kind of gaudy gallimorphry. Monty Python did it 50 years ago, and we see their work duly quoted here. Goodness knows what someone seeing their first Verdi, first opera indeed, would make of this travesty. What a notion they might form of opera's essential silliness, glibness, irreverence and obligatory camp. Certain directors feel obliged to enlist some acrobats to rev up the audience and distract from the music. Olivier Pay did it in Opera Australia's recent Lohengrin, when he introduced a pointless acrobat to babysit the gratuitous child. Livermore does the same in the Anvil Chorus, not a bad scene really, and the audience duly whooped and applauded. The most egregious of the many facile effects came at the end of Act Two, set supposedly in a convent's cloister, but here a sort of hospital to which Leonora was about to commit herself. The Romany clan has become a band of circus artists who live, as Livermore writes in a sketchy director's note. Quote, In a sinister amusement park immersed in virtual environments that evoke scenarios of post war destruction and the mystery of tarot cards, disturbing and wonderful, unspeakable and unconfessable feelings are at stake. The ungainly romp that followed disfigured this great scene and distracted our attention from Leonora's mighty music at the end. The direction throughout was wanting. There was little engagement. Singers seemed stranded, cling though they did to the noisy revolve. Il Trovatore, almost to the same degree as Don Carlo, calls for several major voices. On this occasion, the singing was very mixed. Manrico, Azucena's supposed son, is another of Verdi's tempestuous tenor roles, ardent, loyal, ever mystified. He's quick to wrath and instantly misconstrues Leonoro's pact at the end. But Manrico has some exceptional music, notably the bodeful aria "Asi Ben Mio" in Act Three. Yonghun Lee, who recently sang Otello for this company, was in poor voice. He seemed physically ill at ease throughout, and his voice had a pronounced bark-like quality. He cracked badly in Act Two. Presumably he was unwell, though there was no announcement. Every tenor must secretly dread De Quellapira in Act Three, the cabaletta to end all cabalettas, as it's been described. Here Lee rallied, even sustaining, with a tremendous effort of will, the interpolated high C at the end that was not in verdi's score il trovatore according to maria callas is really leonora's opera but then callas said that of most of her roles certainly leonora has some of the loveliest music in verdi's canon the american soprano lea crocetto was making her third appearance with the company First came Aida in 2011. Recently she sang Margarita in the concert version of Boito's Mephistopheles. Crocetto in Melbourne was impressive in the lament notte, in Fondo al mare, but the true beauty and power of her voice was most apparent in the duet with Faust that followed. So there was much expectation in Sydney. The coloratura predictably did not phase Crocetto, and she trilled freely. Crocetto has sung Leonora before, and she will doubtless sing it again. It's a part, as we're reminded whenever we hear it, that demands the utmost lyric assurance, but also phenomenal legato resources. The finest music in the opera comes in Act Four, and Crocetto was at her best in D'Amour and the ensembles that followed the Count, insanely in love with Leonora, is one of Verdi's great creations for the baritone. He has a superlative aria in Act II, Il Balen. Ferrando's companions tell us at the outset that jealousy gnaws at the Count's heart like a venomous serpent. Still, Charles Osborne reminds us that the Count is not Iago-like, but, quote, a man whom desire has driven virtually to madness. There is a degree of realisation at the end when the Count acknowledges the extent of Leonora's sacrifice and what he has perpetrated. Maxime Aniskin sang with due accuracy but little power or engagement. He seemed permanently adrift on the stage, rarely engaging with the other singers, even during moments of putative passion and rage. So often with this company, one thinks of local actor-singers who would be just right for these meaty roles. Elena Gabori, such a brilliant ortrude in Lohengrin in Melbourne this autumn, was Azacena, that tormented, indomitable woman. We have seen some commanding Azacenas in this country notably Fiorenza Cosotto in 1985, towards the end of her career, and Loris Elms, sedentary and terrifying, at her finest, in the Elijah Mashinsky, Sidney Nolan 1983 production, opposite Joan Sutherland, Kenneth Collins and Jonathan Summers. Some of Azucena's best music comes in Act Three, during her long and infinitely melodic scene with Manrico, but Livermore's conception was such a mess, and yong hun so uncomfortable and detached, casually lighting a cigarette during moments of revelation, that much of this was squandered. Gabori was most compelling in the final trio with Leonora and Manrico, when Asachena, singing with beauty and tenderness, dreams of returning with him to the mountains and recovering their old happiness. The costumes didn't help the singer's cause. They were disparate and parodic and deeply unsympathetic, in Leonora's case. Of the other singers, David Parkin stood out as Ferrando. He sang all the notes, including the trills, which can't be said of many Ferrandos. Perhaps it's time for this young bass to assume a major role with the company. The chorus, one of the jewels of this company sang with less assurance and impact than usual, possibly unsettled by the bizarre direction and ceaseless movement. The orchestra seemed oddly muted, and some of the tempi were leaden. Andrea Battistoni, who had conducted Mephistopheles in Melbourne with Force and Alain in May, struggled at times to retain control of the action on stage, and there were some serious lapses in timing. Contrast all this with the harmonious integration of the musical and the digital in A Winter's Journey, currently touring the nation with music of Viva. Here we had another glory of Western music, Schubert's Winterreiser, unforgettably performed here by British tenor Alan Clayton, fresh from his recent triumphs as Peter Grimes and Hamlet in Brett Dean's opera. At no point did the digital projections of works by Fred Williams, a novel and potentially incongruous conceit, distract from this sorrowful, incomparable music? Nothing was flippant, gratuitous or jarring. Instead, we were offered a true marriage of meanings and artistic sensibilities, one that augurs well for Musica Eva under its new artistic regime. Some of these images will inform these tragic songs for years to come. And here I'd note that my colleague Michael Schmidt reviews A Winter's Journey separately for ABR Arts. Furthermore, on the eve of Trovatore, the Sydney Town Hall was almost full for the last of three performances of Richard Strauss's An Alpine Symphony, led by British conductor Mark Elder whose association with the AYO goes back many decades. After all the vicissitudes of recent years, this was a stirring account of Strauss's final tone poem, with notable contributions from the brass and the principal oboe. Here, in difficult circumstances, music was undertaken with seriousness, conviction, and fidelity. The comparison with what we heard on Friday night, was stark. Later, at a gathering for supporters of the AYO, Mark Elder made an impassioned speech, extolling the young players and exhorting people in the audience in this philistine and refractory age to actively embarrass politicians into supporting the cultural institutions that underpin our cultural And civic life. The barbarians, he seemed to imply, are at the gates. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.